All right, welcome to Call and Shots. Uh, it's been a couple, been about a week. I am uh, I am at Summer League in Las Vegas. So if there's noise in the background, it's the you know the whole of the NBA world is 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 here with me. But I am joined today uh, by uh, a guest I've been trying to get on basically since I started the show, uh, Doug Lamov, uh, author of many books, including most recently uh, the teacher uh, the teachers the coach's guide to teach. The Teacher's Guide to Coaching. Do I have that backwards? Coach's Guide That's to terrible. Teaching. Yeah. Coach's Guide to Teaching. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, first of all, thank you for coming on. Uh, second, uh, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great, and thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be on with you. I just, so, finished, your, I just finished your book, so, uh, you know, so uh, the, the admiration is mutual. That, that it, uh, I'm sure it's old hat for you since, uh, since you've written many very successful books, but it's still surreal to me. When, when people even mentioned they've read the book, let alone liked it. So thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I wanted to, to start out. I was um, something I've been interested in for a long time and an area that I thought was going to be in the book when I first like um, outlined it. I thought I was going to do more on, uh, I guess, what you might call people analytics. Mm-hmm. And part of that was like skill acquisition and stuff like that. Yeah. And then as soon as I started studying it, I realized... This isn't a chapter, certainly not a chapter I can write. This is an entire book, and certainly not an entire book that I can write. Um, so, um, just how do we gain skill yeah. at athletic events? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating question, and it's, um, you know, it's probably several questions in one, which is, you know, to be able to have a skill... You would, a cognitive scientist would, would probably describe that as something that's encoded in your long-term memory. But that's actually two different processes. One is the encoding, which is I learn it, I know how to do it. And the other one is the retrieval, which is I can find it quickly under complex conditions when I need it. And so, you know, to be able to... Um, I'll, I'll tell you quick story. My, my daughter's a soccer player. Uh, and when she was very young, um, we tried to work on a move called a Cruyff turn which is, you know, you drag the ball back behind your front leg with, uh, with, uh, with one of your feet. It's, you know, it's a tricky move. And we did it, you know, a thousand times in the basement. And it was fully encoded because uh, yeah. uh, to act. <laughs> this would be a great time for me to drag the ball. It had to be so automated in some ways that, um, that she could do it almost without thinking about it for it to be fast enough in the game. And so learning a skill, you know, I think one of the things you could say about it that's challenging is that it's a combination of both encoding and then the ability to find it very, very quickly when your mind is doing other things in a complex situation. And those are different. Um, you know, they're different skills. And I think one of the other things that, you know, one of the things that creates a retrieval pathway is retrieval practice, which is bringing something back into working memory over and over. I think one of the most fascinating things about learning is, and maybe the most overlooked things about learning, is the profound role of forgetting, which is as soon as you have finished learning something, you begin to forget it. And this creates constant problems for coaches, right? You are in a training situation, <laughs> you're, uh, you're, you're, pre- you're working on your press defense, and at the end of the session, it looks like everyone understands what they're doing, right? Because I can see you doing it, so I assume that you've learned it. 
And as soon as practice starts, you begin to forget it. Uh, and you know, the data is really clear on this, that you know, left unabated, you will, you will forget the majority of what you learn in your life unless you constantly bring it back into working memory and review it and cause people to struggle, struggle to think about it. And so this describes the difference, the difference between performance and learning. And performance is your ability to do something in the midst of thinking about it. And learning is your ability to do something when you have to remember it later, you know, after delay. And so lots of times coaches will see at the end of a training session, players can do something and they will, they will presume, okay, now it's ready to transfer to the game. But of course the game is five days later or six days later or three months later and players aren't able to do it. And then the coach thinks, well, I know that they know how to do it. So why didn't they do it? It must be an attitude problem. It must be a mindset problem. It must be a, you know, a, a commitment problem when in fact, um, it's the profound role of forgetting and learning. We went over this and shoot around this morning, the coaches lament. <laughs> um, so that I think you know, one of the things that that, that struck me early in the book is is is, is I think I, I remember if it was Cristiano Ronaldo, who was the player you you were you were discussing, who basically um, we we often talk about the best players like seeing the game faster or better or something mm-hmm. like that, and the way you described it is it seems like research suggests they see the game, you know, for to to be reductive about it, they see the game more simply. They're looking at fewer things and picking out the, you know, basically picking out the signal from the noise of everything that's going on. Yeah, it's fascinating, which is the, this phenomenon in cognitive science is called the quiet eye. And yet, in, intuitively, you would probably think that a better athlete would be looking at more and taking in more information while they're performing. But it's actually the opposite that's true, and that, you know, when they... Um, when they put eye tracking glasses on elite athletes or when they track what they're looking at, they find that a player like Cristiano Ronaldo is looking at less. Um, and that, you know, or a, a hitter in Major League Baseball, a more proficient hitter, his eyes would tend to lock in on the most important visual cues and not be wandering around looking for extraneous information. And so, um, in, in some ways, you could argue that that's what expertise is, which is knowing what to look for for the right cue at the right moment. Uh, you know, so you talk you talk in your book, for example, about how profoundly important steals are as an as a proxy for basketball IQ. I think you say that you know a steal is worth nine point one points, which seems like a strange thing to say, but of course it just indicates that players who make steals are players whose eyes are going in the right direction, whose eyes tend to rest intuitively on the right things because they understand the game. And a lesser player's eyes would be. Well, they wouldn't really know where their eyes should go at a given moment, so their eyes would be scanning, uh, scanning the field for a signal. And scanning, searching, is really expensive from a cognitive standpoint. It takes a lot of a lot of your mental focus. And so, um, so there's, you know, ironically, expert, you know, decision making often starts with the eyes and whether your eyes habitually go to the right place. And experts' eyes tend to be quieter because they tend to know where the signal is, as opposed to you know being attracted to noise. I find this fascinating because this is this is you know very similar to um, you know the better someone is at statistical model modeling, the fewer things tend to that you're basically doing as much as possible to remove things from your model, so that you have you know you have fewer future features, so that the ones you have you can better explain like what the levers are. 
Um, and, the, and, you know, when you first try something, it's like, well, I have all this data, so let me just throw the kitchen sink and run a logistic regression, and, and now, I have a, now I have a model. But the better you get at it, it's like, okay, I don't need that, I don't need that, I don't need that. I have 98% of the explanatory power before um, with, you know, a fifth of the things in there, so now I have a better which one of those, how much each of those things actually matters. Yeah, that was one of the really fascinating connections I saw between, um, you know, your book and, and the work that I've done, which is just how uh, how important looking is. You know, like, th- this sounds really simple, but, like, you could argue that a coach's first skill is just to be able to watch and observe. Yes, during a game, but I would say even more so in practice. And we don't necessarily think about this as being a skill uh, and something you could get better at or something you could have systems to make sure that you see accurately and you see well. But of course, you know, like the, the human, the story of human perception is that we can never perceive everything in our visual field at once. We can only perceive a small portion of it. So what we pay attention to and what, the habits of what we pay attention to are really, really important. And as coaches, I think, you know, we often feel like, oh, we're not coaching if we're not saying something or setting up the next drill. But, I'll, you know, <laughs> in many cases, I, I think the gap in a lot of practices is just really careful watching, which is, you know, I told you, uh, you know, we're going to work on the pick and roll, but then I don't really watch very carefully to observe whether you are, whether everyone is picking and rolling correctly and what we're getting wrong and what the details are. And so, you know, just that, um, you know, I think they're, they're in many ways both books about, like, about how fraught the process of just simply seeing what's happening in front of us can be. And, I mean, that, when you get into sort of high-level, professional level and sort of, like top level collegiate play, probably a little more in football than in basketball, just because of the size of staffs. Yeah, um, it's like the actual kind of coaching is the 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 head coach isn't isn't always or even usually the one who's on the court or on the field barking out instructions. They're kind yeah. of you know back on the sideline with their arms folded, you know, with sunglasses on and maybe a clipboard, just kind yeah. of, and then occasionally come in and, and, and make a broader point about everything. That that seems like the, the more the, the more efficient and effective method at the highest yeah. level. Yeah, well, I think that's... I've, I've seen very very few NBA practices, but I have, I have seen a few, uh, you know, a, a work with a, a coach or two, and it was a fascinating experience for me um, to watch because one of the first things that struck me is how high the, how high the proportion of coach to player is. Right, there are ten players on. There are ten players active on the court, and you know, one of the NBA sessions I saw, there were probably eight coaches standing around, and all of them, um, with the possible exception of the head coach, as you point out, are saying something. You know, like every time you touch the ball, someone is yelling something at you, right? Uh, and I think this is really challenging because one, it kind of potentially overloads your working memory, which is you know, every time you're trying to play, someone is asking you to think about something, and they're not always aligned, right? Which is like. Uh, people shout out something because it strikes them as they say it, and they don't have any other way to communicate feedback to you, so they just call out to you. I was, I was just sort of struck by how, um, as a player in that setting, I either have to make a habit of ignoring a lot of what gets said to me, which you can imagine that's not necessarily great from a teaching perspective, like my habit. Although, although it's, to, a, it's a useful game skill, I think. Right, I think so. Um, it's, it's a useful game skill, but maybe not a great learning skill. Or I have to, you know, I will end up degrading my performance by trying to listen to a whole lot of things, some of which are probably noise, to go back to this sort of perceptive idea. So, I mean, one of the things that I talked about with one of these coaches was um, 
giving different coaches different specific things to look for, you know, um, uh, what we see is deeply influenced by what we expect to see. And there's too much to pay attention to in any given setting. So one thing that I could do to sort of make the feedback environment and the observational environment more um, productive would be to say, okay, let's get together as coaches before practice. Uh, Seth, you're going to look for this. Dave, you're going you're gonna to you're gonna be watching for this, and I'm going to be watching for that. And then two, like, let's have let's have a place to write things down so that once I have things to, you know, then if I notice that we're slow on our defensive closeouts, other than you in the moment, uh, and in, to communicate that information, which is I can write it down and say it to you later. But if I don't write it down, then my, you know, and I, and I can't hold on to it and I can't, I won't remember all the things I wanted to say. My only option is really to shout it, shout it at you in the moment when you're playing and then everyone is shouting, you know, People are shouting three things to players at exactly the same time, and I get this kind of environment of information overload, which I think is a, maybe a particular challenge from my in the NBA at least from my very limited sample of practices. It's interesting you say that because I've like I've I've been in meetings where coaches have talked about doing just that, and I've been in meetings <laughs> where they haven't. Uh, yeah. So um, there's so there this is this actually leads to. Um, uh, I you know a lot of the a lot of the like the systematic skill improvement stuff in sports like mm-hmm. co- at least in, in like American team sports comes out of baseball because it's easier um, yeah. kind of the like sort of the Kyle body and drive line with you know the various forms of feedback and stuff like that um, it's it's always struck me that that's a better that is a more uh, I don't know uh, productive isn't the right word but a more a more highly successful model for like pure physical motion, repetitive uh, development of okay, I've cl- like cleaning up my jump shot mechanics or learning to take a two dribble pull up with my footwork, you know, getting my footwork mm-hmm. right or something like that. And a lot of what you're talking about with constant auditory feedback, um, I think it's pretty productive. There's there's something that a lot of NBA teams do called daily vitamins, which mm-hmm. is you know it's a 15, 20, 30 minute like workout, the player gets on the court with one or two kind of coaches, video coordinators, and they're working on a, a, a not necessarily routine, but a diet of very specific things. Like, okay, yeah. like whether it's game shots, specific closeouts, specific dribble moves that they want to work on based on where a player is going to be operating in the pick and roll. And in that setting, like they're offering like cues of things that they've talked about, like in film study before. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like from what you're describing, they're almost trying to take that like, you know, that mini that mini game, that, that, that skill development session and port it over to a more dynamic five on five environment and it's resulting in cacophony. Um yeah, it's really interesting. So I only, uh, I, I probably need you to like go through, explain a little bit more of like what what happens during daily vitamins. But sure. it seems like one of the things that you could talk about is, um, is you know, like there's a difference between encoding and retrieval. And so one of the things I would want to think about in that environment is, if I want something to transfer to the game, um, I want to have players do it when it's when they can't predict that it's going to happen. So if I know that I'm going to do three dribble drives in a row, like my mind is on it already before it happens, and that's a setting in which the, uh, I'm encoding the skill, I'm building encoding the skill, I'm building understanding of what I want to do when I dribble drive, but I'm not necessarily build, building understanding or 
preparing players to retrieve it during the game when they don't necessarily know the skill is going to be required in a given moment. And so I would then I would need to bring in some like unpredictability to the training environment. This is kind of the difference between what a yeah. uh, cognitive scientist would call like blocked serial and randomized practice. Which is so if, I wanted, if I wanted to transfer, I have to I have to I have to sequence from block to serial to random practice. I so I so there there is there's an element of that. Like there's usually yeah. like it, it kind of ramps up in in complexity over the course. Like sure. you know, it starts with whether it's form shooting or yeah. all right, we're gonna you know you're gonna drip, you know you're come down take a hard crossover left left to right shoot a pull up come down shoot take a hard dribble right to left shoot and then. You know, when it moves into the later times, it'll be like a game situation, and then there'll yeah. be some kind of signal, whether visual or auditory, that okay, this is the proper response now, and then yeah. then kind of access kind of that routine, if you will. So it does. Yeah. There, there is, there is like the the, 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 the with some like my my last year in Milwaukee, we had some very good player development coaches, and and like I watched them do this, where it was like, you know, just the physical skill, and then get into okay, now here's how you right. They, and, I'm almost certain they wouldn't use this terminology, but here's how you access it. Yeah. Well, here's when you decide to access it. Yeah, I think this is fascinating. I see this a lot. Like, uh, you know, you can probably tell earlier. I don't know much about basketball. I know a lot about the game of soccer. And one of the things that that coaches tend to do in individual training sessions with with soccer players is um, they'll try to signal them, like they'll be executing something, and they'll signal them during the exercise. Um, you know, go left or go right. You know, uh, pass or shoot. And so you have to sort of react to the signal and then execute the skill. Um, and I think lots of times the, the signal that they send is extraneous, right? So it's like if I hold do X, if I hold two fingers, do Y. And of course, I guess I would just say that like it's an interesting idea because it's trying to cause people to make decisions in response to the stimulus. But unless the stimulus, unless the cue is what players will see in the game, it's not it's not that likely to transfer, right? Because what I really need is to practice reading the cue that that tells me, ah, now's the time to now's the time to make this decision. Now's the time to make that decision. Um, so it's, it's it's a really complex, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's one of the reasons why we struggle so much to develop um, to develop skills that transfer to the game because it's such a complex thing to, to ask athletes to do. So this is this is the place where the, the coach to player ratio you're talking about really comes in handy. Is because yeah. you can have you know one player working with you know exactly yeah. a, a coach and two video coordinators. You can actually set up kind of a, a mini sided game that it's like okay if you're if in this situation your read is your your response is based on what the help defender does. You can actually put those right. people on the court. I can and put the not, cue. I can put the yeah. cue on the court as yeah. at least as close as possible to the yeah. cue. Yeah. Yeah, and it's you know it's a it's it, instead of it being you know a, a six seven two hundred thirty pound NBA small forward, it's a it's a you know a, a six two one hundred eighty pound video coordinator. So it's not right. quite we're, thing, we're, but, wearing 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 as far as I can tell giant gloves, right? To yeah, see, like, to see like, the, the reach of, the, of an NBA opponent. Uh, well, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's fascinating. You know, one of the other things that I was thinking about when I was watching practice was how often. Um, Noise, like so. One of the practices I saw for uh, there was you know, just like music playing constantly, and one of the coaches' questions is like, "Should we have music playing?" And I think that like that's actually a really complex question. And I would say like, if if what I want you to be thinking about is encoding the skill, which is I want you to understand the various motions that we're going to make on a dribble handoff as we're just learning it, I probably don't want music going. But if I want to 
train you to be able to execute it with distraction, you know, and uh, then the noise I think can be productive. So I would say like noise would be useful when I'm practicing, when I'm training for retrieval, which is to find a skill that I've already mastered, but probably less useful when I'm trying to really understand this, understand the fundamentals of body movement and technique when I'm executing. That, that actually makes sense to me. It's just like the very fine motor skill part of it needs like total concentration. And it seems like the other stuff needs to almost be, you know, it's, you know, I, I, how many times when you were playing sports growing up was like, like, don't, don't think play. Yeah. Well, I think I, you even talk about, you know, like so the, the uh, Daniel Kahneman's theory about, you know, thinking fast yeah. and slow and that, um, you know, the goal of training is to encode in long-term memory so I can access it quickly. And if I have to think about it, right, as soon as, as, soon as I use my working memory to have to execute something, you know, working memory is also the, interestingly, the site where I prop, where I, I do my visual processing. So if I have to think about doing something, I, my, my level of perception is likely to go down. Right. And, uh, and, and my level and of it's too slow as well. Yeah. It's too slow. Exactly. Like it's too slow. Even if you, even if you do the right thing, it's, 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 it's wrong because it's too late. At the yeah, professional exactly. level, right? It's got to. It's got to be. You know, at the as a at the speed of sight, I think is the best yeah. phrase I can think of for it. Which is, you have to know to do it as soon as you see it. And if there's, a, if there's a, even a fraction of a second delay, it's too late. Yeah, and that's why I like it, like a question that I that I never really know how to answer is is so when you were talking to players about this, how did you do it? I was like, I I didn't because yeah. like like you know anything like at least I don't know how to because it's it's so complex and that what you talked about about you know the coaches needing to simplify the feedback like i don't i i don't know how to do that but i certainly don't know how to do that absent kind of specific specific knowledge from the coaching staff how that fits in with everything else they're doing and so all i'd be doing is getting in the way like immense like getting in the way of their mental process and you know there's so, there well, I think that's I think and I do think that's a question that coaches should always ask themselves yes. like is it possible that my feedback is getting in the like that, that I'm by yelling something at a, at a player I may be intending to get them better but it may not necessarily be getting them better especially if I'm yelling it during a game <laughs> but some of the stuff that gets yelled yelled during a game is like is, is instant cues. Um, yeah, I, I, I was I'm, I'm, I was at a like a seminar here yesterday, and a coach was talking about how like even if something doesn't show up in the scout, there's certain there's a like a like a specific action in basketball. It's called the hammer play. It's basically a player is driving baseline on one side of the court, and a guy on the opposite side sets a screen for a shooter to be open in the opposite corner. And from the bench, you're yelling out, hammer, hammer, hammer. And then all of a sudden, the player who's guarding one of the players, oh, there's going to be a pass along the baseline. I can step here and steal it. And that's just because everyone knows what that means, that they can, like, even if it's not, like, worked on or trained, it's just an, an uh, auditory cue that, that can translate into action, like, instantaneously that way because it's so familiar. Yeah, that's kind of fast. I mean, it's kind of fast because I thought one of the really interesting things about your book was just like, I think one of the, maybe one of the overlaps in interest is, is just how profoundly important vocabulary is to, to learning and development and information sharing, which is um, one, if, I, if we don't have really standardized words for things, we can't really talk about them productively. I think you say it's not what I know, it's, it's what we know. And so we all have to know exactly what we mean by hammer. But then there's also an argument for having like your own distinctive language that other people can't speak. <laughs> uh, that's unique to, you know, that, I mean, that's unique to, and, you know, a lot of like, there's a, 
maybe one of the foremost American soccer coaches, a guy named Jesse Marsh, who coaches at Leeds United in, in England. And his like obsession is vocabulary, and you know, framing phrases to describe the small actions that he wants players to take, particularly like off the ball. Yeah, you know, uh, what you might describe as micro skills, right? Like, wh- wh- how do I want to position myself away from the ball? How do I want to attack the ball when uh, when the opposition has the ball? And so he, he has discrete, unique, only to his team and his culture phrases for these things. One, so that he can like name them and practice. But two, that also lets him communicate with his players in a language that the opposition can't understand. Because as soon as you yell hammer, right, everyone, you're not just communicating to your player, you're communicating to, to everyone. I just, I just think that language systems are, are chronically overlooked. You know, and, and like a small example of this would be, I assume there are cases in basketball where there might be something which you could use like two or three different names for. There are lots of examples of this in soccer. In at, soccer at, like you, at minimum. Yeah, so like you receive yeah. the ball side on or you receive the ball in the half turn, right? Those are actually the same thing in the game of football. But, you know, like um, my, my son played for a club for years and like he played for a year for a uh, coach who referred to referred to receiving the ball side on, and then the next year he played for a coach who re- referred to receiving the ball in the half turn. I don't think he ever fully connected those two, that those two things were the same, and that everything he knew about the half turn also applied to receiving the ball side on because the club was using different terminology to talk about the same things. And so I just like you know standardizing vocabulary within a learning environment is actually hugely important, and you know I, I think we just often take vocabulary for yeah. granted. I think an example of that from basketball is there's a, a particular style of coverage in the pick and roll, which is basically forcing the ball handler away from the screen. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, you know, it, it first became po- like, you know, I may have the chronology around here, but it first became popular in like yachts, and it was known, you could, it was known as blue or down or ice. But like ice has become the dominant phraseology in large part because of one particular coach could be here bellowing ice, ice, right. ice uh, on TV <laughs> so often. So now everyone just calls it. So now everyone, because everyone can hear Tom Thibodeau, you know, his voice going hoarse, bellowing out ice on every pick and roll from the sideline. That uh, that's now just what everyone calls it. Yeah, it's, fa- it's fascinating. So you almost have to now like reinvent your voc- reinvent your vocabulary occasionally, at least if you want to use yeah. it tactically in that in that game. Yeah. Uh, so I have one one question on the soccer side, and then and then I got a, we've got a good question from a from a, a frequent listener in chat. Is um, maybe this is my like lack of knowledge, but it seems like discretizing things in soccer is not super common in the same way as it is like in, I don't know. Like there's there's concepts like an overlapping run, but it's not really mm-hmm. defined as specifically as like a pick and roll is in basketball it seems like those those actions those events are sort of much more standardized in basketball and then getting into a fort sport like american football where it's like super standardized and by the way you want to talk about a you know a, a, a yeah. sport uh, dominated by like proprietary jargon uh-oh that's the one so am, am i wrong in thinking that or is it just something that i haven't because i've never you know you know, played or been really exposed to in soccer instruction at a high level that I'm just not aware of. I mean, I think this is one of one of my, my biggest takeaways from your book. Actually, was uh, I think you quote I, I don't know how to say his last name, Rajiv uh, Maheswaran. Maheswaran talking about how different so- how soccer vocabulary and basketball vocabulary are different because the game it's a bigger game. 
right? The, the, the space is much wider, and so you're you, and you would be applying an idea of like um, of getting into space in 15 different places on the field, as opposed to like basketball is really like, you know, you're always you're almost always acting in reference to where the basket is, and uh, there are longer stretches of undetermined play you know there are you know there are timeouts there aren't plays that we run because the game is more complex and so it's more about geometry it's more you know, about geometry i think soccer struggles with vocabulary oftentimes to describe what they want players to do because it's because the vocabulary is forced to do work over a much wider range of vaguer contexts and in basketball i think it's one of the lucky things you have in the game is you know it, it's a very precise context that you're referring to um, it recurs repeatedly, and so you can have plays and things like that. So I, I just think of one of my big takeaways was how vocabulary functions differently in different sports, just because of the dynamics and and, uh, and structure of how the games how the games are played. You know, I think like soccer and rugby probably have a lot in common in the way that vocabulary functions, because um, the ball you know the ball stops less often. You can't you can't you know you can't even in basketball like you can hold the ball right. And so, and uh, and so, then you can set up a play from there in a way that you can't really do in the game of soccer. No, this is this is you know this is actually it, it's a challenge in my day job where we where like like that's bomb is a company that does soccer data and is yeah. building foot like American football and basketball data. But one of the challenges is even with like sort of inputs at a you know a very fine grain level. Like okay, we can see all the players are and, and where they're going, and okay, but what are they doing? What's the, what's the semantic layer on that that we can that so that then we can you know do some even if it's just as Rajiv likes to say fancy counting. Yeah, like we still have to be able to to you know take that from kind of continuous action to discrete, and it's well, challenging because it doesn't exist yet. Yeah, and, and you know maybe another difference in soccer, you know, like ten of the players don't have the ball, and so. Uh, and they won't have the average soccer player has the ball for something like two minutes a game. That's a lot to have the ball to have the ball for two minutes a game is a lot in the game of soccer. And so most of what you do that's important is away from the ball. And things that are away from the ball are really hard to describe. Uh, and I'm actually working on kind of a video curriculum with a with a high level coach just to be able to like describe and put names to the different kinds of movements that you would make away from the ball. So the players can conceive of them, and then talk about like when, where, why, and how. Because you know, I would, you know, uh, most data is made up on the on the spur of the moment. I'm going to make up some data right here to say <laughs> like 80 plus percent of the movements that players make off the ball in the game of soccer, they really have no idea what they're doing and why they're doing it. They're just moving because they know that they're supposed to move. And there's a really conception of like, oh. I should use a jab step here to unweight my defender and then check back into space to create an opening for myself. Or I should feign disinterest with my body, right? You need a name for that. And then drop my shoulder very briefly to make it seem like I'm going in one direction and then come into another direction. And why would I use that? And when would I want to use it? And do I want to use a jab step when the ball is coming slowly to me or fast, you know, when the ball, when the ball is coming at pace? Like those are... It's just it's um, off the ball movements are are so much like so much less likely to get named and studied and described and understood, but they're so important to the game. That's another, just another connection to your book, which is yeah. like almost all the statistics describe things that happen on or around the ball, and at least in the game of soccer, like the most important things in your becoming an elite player, are what you do when you don't have the ball, which is this kind of nameless, uh, uncharted territory. 
Yeah, and, it, and the best players, by and large, like have whether it's through like intuition or study or repetition, have you know they probably might not even be able to verbalize like why they're doing something, but they just do it. Right, because because it's intu- intuitive, they're much less likely to be able to describe it. Yeah, which I think is just from a coaching perspective. You know, oftentimes um, the players who make the best coaches are not the best players because, because simply because it's so intuitive to them. They have the curse of expertise. They don't understand why it's harder for some people to do what's obvious to them that you should do or it comes naturally to them. And so breaking it down and saying, okay, here's why you want to do it. Here's when you want to do it. Here's how you do it. That's actually really hard for someone from, yeah. <laughs> for whom it all just happens very naturally. I, 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 and I can give you an example of something I witnessed on this. Is, uh, is you know Jason Kidd is one of the best point guards in NBA history. He was the coach of the Bucks for a time that I was there. And there was one day in practice we were, they were working on baseline out of bounds plays, and whoever had like whoever's inventing the ball was struggling to make one specific pass. And it was like you know it was one option out of the play and. He just couldn't read when that pass was was open or not, and so so Jason's like, okay, let me show let me show you, and he just like steps in, takes it out of bounds, and all of a sudden, like, no matter how covered the the the, the, the player looked on this specific movement, he just zip 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 and finding different angles past defenders and everything. That is just you, you just throw it, you just throw it, you just it's like, okay, well, you can do that, <laughs> but, yeah, but, but well, that's so. Yeah, it's so interesting because um, I just like two st- two things that jumped into my mind as you were talking about. One is that, you know, one of the fascinating things that cognitive scientists have found out in the last ten to fifteen years is like how long it takes to have a conscious thought, and the answer to that apparently is um, about six tenths of a second, six uh, hundred milliseconds, and that's really interesting because things happen much faster than that all the time in sports, and uh, you know, a pitched baseball in. Uh, in the major leagues is a great example. The average fastball arrives at home plate in four in 400 milliseconds. And if the fastest you can have a conscious thought is 600 milliseconds, like what, what do you do? How do you hit? And, uh, you know, for a long time, I think that baseball maybe thought it was about reaction time, but actually it's about um, perception action cue, which is like the best hitters are looking at the opposition pitcher and reading the opposition pitcher's arm channel and shoulder motion and hip rotation, and so they know what the pitch is going to be before the pitch is thrown. But they don't actually even know that they do this, right? They've sort of, through lucky happenstance, their eyes, to go back to the quieter, their eyes tend to look at the right things, and so they understand what's about to happen. But not only can they not explain to someone else, here's what I'm doing with my eyes to help me understand what to look for to make this inbound pass that has to happen in the blink of an eye, they may not even be aware of what their of, of what you know their own visual behavior, uh, and so you know it's this, this black box, <laughs> like uh, uh, describing things that oftentimes to be able to perform them you almost can't understand them. They go, they go straight from perception to perception to action. Um, but I think one thing that can often be helpful is. Um, it's you know modeling as opposed to describing, which is like I'm just going to show you what I do. Um, and how I do it, and then I'm going to ask you to just, just straight copy it. I just want you to try and do what I do. I think it's interesting because um, can I t- can I just go nerdy on you for a second? Oh, please, about please. <laughs> so, I, that's what the show is for. All right, so here's a fascinating study from the Annals of Cognitive Science. The, these cognitive scientists took a um, they took a box with like a treat in it, basically, and the experiment was about like 
doing a series of behaviors to open up this box and get like a gummy bear that's in it. And they did the experiment with human children who were like five and six years old and chimpanzees. <laughs> uh, I'm just la- I'm, I'm laughing because my son is six and, he, and oh great, we'll try this at home. And he loves gummy and he loves gummy bears. So you know, yeah. people are always telling you not to try this at home. You can try this one. At yeah. Home. Okay. So in the experiment, they do a series of extraneous behaviors to show the chimpanzees and the children how to open the box first. So they, they you pull a stick out of the box and you tap the top of the box and you tap the side and then you um, insert the stick again and then you twist a little drawer and pull it out and that opens the gummy bear. And so they modeled it with this series of extraneous steps. Um, and then the final step is the one that opens the drawer. And, and, and the question is, how do chimpanzees and humans react differently? And the fascinating thing is that chimpanzees really quickly figured out that they didn't need to do all the extraneous actions, and they just pulled the drawer and opened it up and got the gummy bears. But the children continued to replicate all these extraneous steps and the tapping of the stick on the side of the box and all the things that like clearly don't affect whether you can get the gummy bear. And so at first, I think the experimenters were like, so does this tell us that chimpanzees are smarter than human children? Which obviously doesn't, because uh, you know human children are many times smarter. And what they realized is happening is that humans have evolved to... Um, to over-imitate from, from models because it's so profoundly important to us evolutionarily because so many co- processes in human life are incredibly complex. Like, imagine, um, you know, turning wheat into bread is like a multi-day process of, like, I mean, I, I couldn't even tell you what, you know, like, chopping and weeding and chaffing and soaking and then, you know, either like, and so to be able to take advantage of all the comp- the more complex things that we're able to do as a species, you have to be, you have to have evolved to assume that everything you see is important as part of the process. And so when in doubt, a human is much more likely to continue to copy. He doesn't have live culture and things, you know, incredibly complex processes to learn in the course of his life. And it's like, I'm just going to pull out the drawer and get the gummy bear. And so when we, we copy things, when we observe things, even though we don't even know that we're copying them, we're constantly more alert to the details of execution when we're watching than even we realize as watchers. So I just think it's like maybe creates an opportunity to like, instead of telling someone what to do, just have them watch over and over again. They'll pick up things that they don't even realize that they're picking up from the execution of the skill. Most of the things that we learn, we learn by watching. And then maybe I guide them to be like, okay, now watch. Watch my footwork. Watch where my eyes go. Um, you know, watch how I'm holding the ball. Et cetera. You know, watch, watch my body position, something like that, maybe just to like direct people to particularly important parts of the model. It's interesting because as you were saying that, I was getting again back to the the importance of language and vocabulary because that's a large, like, you know, that's the, the vernacular we're using is sort of doing that, like the, all those incredibly complex things you're saying about a, a jab step to, you know, let the ball run past you, take it with your opposite foot, and then drag it by a guy. Like, you can't say all that, you, you, yeah. but if you just call that a, I don't know, you call that a shimmy or something like that, it's yeah. like, okay, yes, I, I, I do all those things, because I've practiced it a bunch of times, so I know that that complex series of movements, and, and then when the time comes to do that in the game, like, that's one word that pops in my head, and then, like, button pressed, away we go. Like um, like a video game. Yeah, well, I think I think you're spot on. Like you know, like chunking is this phenomenon in cognitive psychology, which is basically one of the other things that experts do 
that differentiates them from novices is they're basically able to process more information visually. So like um, they can look at they can look at something that a novice would perceive as as like four or five separate things and see it as one thing in a chunk. And so like um, the classic experiment on this is experimenter shows a chessboard to an expert uh, chess player and a novice chess player for yep. two seconds, covers it up. The expert chess player can recreate the entire board. The novice chess player can recreate three or four pieces. And the reason for this is because the chess player, the expert chess player sees not just an individual knight placed, you know, somewhere, but like a relation, he says four or five pieces together or six or eight pieces together as a single thing, a relationship, right? And so that allows him to see more visually in a faster period. You can imagine how valuable that is in the basketball or soccer setting. And I think one of the ways that you might try to teach people to chunk is just to give names to complex things, right? That um, what you described is like, you know, when I have a name for something, I then I can conceptualize it and I can see it and I can begin to recognize it when it happens. And so, just naming chunks of things and constantly associating a rich picture of like this sequence of events with a name for them. Um, uh, I actually know a basketball coach who does a lot of this with like uh, um, sequences of passes, right? Like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sort of struggling to remember exactly what the sequence is, but basically, like. Um, you know, he'll he'll name like sequences of three passes so that his players conceive of these passes and sequences. And as soon as they get the ball, they kind of know where they're trying to go with it right away. He's kind of che- teaching them to chunk the game and see it in large in larger pieces at once. No, like a, like a common is is like swing swing. Is like okay, yeah, we've we've got the ball to an open person. The defense is, is scrambling. We make one pass. They can probably make the recovery to the first one, but if we just do this, the second one quickly, like then there's nobody left to, to recover to that last player, and we get an open shot. Yeah, that's right. And the key is there that I'm thinking about that as one single thing as opposed yep. to three individual passes, right? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a larger movement. Actually, and it's, it's funny, a college teammate of mine could not make the, the, the second pass there, like on, like he, he, like, no matter how, when he would catch the ball at the top of the key, he, he just, for whatever reason, could not catch it, turn across his body, and throw the pass on the other side of the floor. It wasn't that he was being selfish or anything like that. Just mm-hmm. for whatever reason, it always had to be a like a turn and a pump fake and a oh there it is instead of just yeah. and and it and like it, it, it was just it was it, it, a fantastically like intelligent individual who was like a physics major and now like yeah. is is an electrical engineer who like runs a power grid. So, but this one, this like one thing he just, he, he could not ever figure out how to do. I mean, I feel like a working theory. What I might do as a coach, our tendency is to presume that this is like a deliberate decision on his part, a personality flaw. Like you, you pointed out, he's not selfish, right? He's he, and he's and he's smart, right? So you were right there telling me the two most logical explanations: is the guy doesn't well, care about passing the ball; he wants to hold the ball. He, or he's he, not, he or did he's like to get a shot, to out. Well, I, right. but it wasn't like he it was it wasn't like he okay, was holding enough. the ball to shoot because he was like an interior player, so he wasn't going to yeah. like shoot a, shoot a top of the key jumper. But he just like he couldn't reverse yeah. the ball. But I, I think that we tend to presume that when decisions don't happen, it's that players have seen what the what the correct options are or what the ideal option is and have chosen not to do it. When the most likely scenario was actually that he never saw 
ne- either never perceived the ball coming to me as a cue to pass to continue the second pass, or never saw through his, in his peripheral vision that I have a player on the opposite wing and I need to find him now. And so, because I think, like, like, if let's say, imagine this happens and a coach blows the whistle, and your friend's name is Danny in this case, like. You know, would start by critiquing the decision, which is Danny. You got to pass the ball. Why aren't you passing? You know, you got to. And I think that maybe a better starting point would be like, blow the whistle, Danny. What do you see? Right. Just like to ask, because my first step is to understand is to perceive, understand what he's perceiving, what he sees, and what he doesn't see. And if he says, um, I see the swing pass coming, and I've got to get it wide, then I know that it's about either him having the technique to be able to do it, or making a conscious decision to do it. But if he says, Dave's in the low post, or, you know, uh, our shape is, you know, if he gives me random information, it probably means that he's not looking at the right details, that he's not he's not even perceiving the play that I want him to make. And so it actually starts with perception and not with a conscious choice. I mean, that- Which I think is a way of saying lots of times when we see players making decisions that we don't like, the place to start is with, is with trying to guide their eyes and at least understanding what they saw and what, what they perceived and what they didn't perceive. That that makes perfect sense. Um, I promised to keep you for only about forty five minutes, and we're running up on that. So I do want to get to because uh, I think I think it's a very interesting question too. That uh, Abdul Rahman is a very dedicated listener to the show, despite being I don't know something like twelve hours offset time zone wise. Uh, he he asks uh, what how, what how, what's the usual time? How long? does it take for training to translate to uh, being accessible, executable in a, in a game situation? I imagine that I varies mean, greatly by the level of, of player. By the level of player, by the probably the complexity of the skill and uh, the complexity of the, of the environment. But I, I do think that like even the simplest skills um, require multiple layers of retrieval practice, which is, you know, even if I want you to remember a very simple thing slowly with no time constraint you probably need to practice it begin to forget it practice it again begin to you know it's it's not just repetition it's repetition after partial forgetting that creates fast memory and so i probably need to do that four or five times at minimum even for the most simple skill but for something that's complex and has to happen at the speed of sight and has to involve coordination and observation of you know multiple complex phenomena you know it's going to be significantly more than that which is a long way of saying i don't know (laughs) i don't know but i don't don't know but it's not once and it's probably not five times and it's not just repetition right it's it's repetition um with uh with forgetting in between the so it's not enough just to do it 30 times in a row right i've got to do it three or four times go do something else as players have begun to forget it and think about something else and other things in their working memory now come back to it struggle to remember it that that struggling to remember it is the part that that um, encodes neural pathways and creates long-term memory. Last question, I guess, which is sort of about... Sorry, I got booted from the app there just for a second. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, the, the, my last question, though, is um, based off that is something that's always is like a big change to like um something like, like okay this he's got he's got to fix his shot mechanics um mm. okay it's okay we, it's november we're in season we realize he's got to shot fix his shot mechanics but we've got three games next week right like 
is is there a way to balance the skill acquisition with the still needing to access the old ability in the interim or is that something like okay well we're not going to do that during the season because we we can't have him just not like we can't have him like you know like in in in, in like a, a cocoon stage before he becomes a beautiful butterfly like during the game so i guess we got to wait till the summer is that i think it's, okay. it's a huge challenge right in order to change it first i have to break it uh and then it's you know uh and cause you to not be able to do it well to recreate it and so I think that is very hard to do in the midst of a season. I know that, like, you know, one one theory that you could use, I'm not saying I've talked to a baseball team that actually deliberately do this, but I think when they have a player whose mechanics they want to change in the middle of the season, they often might find an opportunity to put him on the DL, which, which allows them a block of time in which to practice where uh, there is no game expectation so that you know, he can build it back up again. And doesn't just sort of revert back to back to the original because I think that's an incredible challenge to put an athlete under. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I don't think there's a simple answer to that question. It seems like it's an incredibly hard thing to do to change skill when you're playing when you're playing regularly and you need you know and and you know that the new skill is going to be suboptimal to the existing skill for a period of time to ask someone to go out and perform and do something less op, you know do it in a way that will be have a less positive outcome. Um, most people just aren't going to do that for obvious, for obvious yeah, reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then the, the flip side of that is, though, that you still have to, like, as you do it, you still have to implement it in, like, a, a, a situation of some kind of competition. Right. So, and maybe, maybe, like, in a basketball context, maybe, like, a summer pickup game is, like, sufficient for that. But it's, it's still just fascinating that, that like, having to, okay, I want I, I would like to win this game I'm playing right now, but I would also like to be better long term yeah. and that involves like getting worse first and yeah, that, that and, balances. and if I'm going to try and pull that off it's certainly like the psychosocial environment is going to be hugely important right? I have to know that I have to trust you enough as a coach to believe that you really won't hold it against me if I try and do the thing you're asking me to do and I, and I, and I struggle and I fail and that uh, you know my minutes won't suffer and I won't you know it's a tough ask in a professional environment I mean it sure is right it, it would be a pr- it would to the degree that an athlete is willing to do it, it's definitely a statement about trust in the coaching and learning environment. And so, you know, I just, uh, as you know, Dan Abrahams is a cognitive psychologist that I love, he just says, like, the psychosocial is always with us. Whenever we ask anyone to do anything, it's always a question of, like, does this environment create an environment of trust sufficient that I'm willing to take the risk to do it? Well, I don't think there's any good place to end because I think I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours and hours. But uh, I, you've been incredibly generous with your time uh, uh, this morning, or I guess this afternoon for you, and um, uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, we can do it again sometime. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity, and, uh, and great talking with you. Uh, you as well, and folks who are listening. I am back tomorrow to talk about. Uh, something completely different, um, some of the, the strategic developments of this past NBA playoffs. Uh, with with uh, he, he, He's asked to remain anonymous because he is a high school coach and doesn't want his players hearing him opine about these things. Uh, but it, uh, he's known on Twitter as Bowser to Bowser. He's pretty expert in this stuff. It should be fun. Join me then.